Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and reading again at verse 20, where we read, But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, son of Mary, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. The American football coach Tony Dungy has famously defined courage as follows. Courage is the ability to do the right thing all the time no matter how painful or uncomfortable it might be. Courage is the ability to do the right thing all the time, no matter how painful or uncomfortable it might be. This morning we're continuing our series on a fearless Christmas. We've already looked at God's word to a perplexed priest. We then looked at God's word to a trusting teenager We now come to God's word to a flummoxed fiancé and the extraordinary courage that he had to exhibit. And we're looking at these verses under two headings, a scandalous issue and then a sovereign instruction. A scandalous issue and a sovereign instruction. First, a scandalous issue, that's in verses 18 and 19, where Matthew focuses on the scandalous issue that Jesus was facing. The scandalous issue that Joseph was facing. Now before proceeding we can note the context. This is a book that was written by a Jewish tax collector named Matthew or Levi who was called to follow Jesus. After Jesus' death and resurrection Matthew undertook to write an account of who this Jesus actually was. As he writes his primary focus is to present Jesus as the long promised Messiah the great bringer of blessing, the long-awaited deliverer for its people. This is made clear in the genealogy of the opening 17 verses, where Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is both the son of David and he's the son of Abram. He's the one in whom all the nations are going to be blessed. And having noted the context, we can note the conception in verse 18. Matthew begins by telling us that this is an account of the birth of Jesus Christ. That word birth can refer to emergence from the womb, but it can also refer to conception within the womb. Matthew is directing his reader's attention to the origins of the great subject of his work, the origins of the great subject of his gospel. And Matthew goes on to tell us that Jesus' mother Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now in first century Judaism, uh, a betrothal was far more solemn, far more binding than an engagement. It involved a solemn ceremony in the presence of witnesses where the couple were promised, they were pledged to one another. It was a ceremony that was so solemn, it was so binding that it could only be broken, it could only be annulled by death or divorce. And Matthew tells us here that this young girl was found to be with child. She's pregnant before the marriage ceremony has taken place. 
It was a scandal in such a a conservative Jewish culture. And it's significant that Matthew writes here that she was found to be with child. That indicates that other people knew about this pregnancy. It indicates that other people were talking about this pregnancy. And the acting agency in this conception, Matthew says, is none other than the Holy Spirit. Mary isn't pregnant due to some inappropriate activity with Joseph. Neither is she pregnant due to some illicit encounter with another man. The Holy Spirit is depicted as God's life-giving agent in the Old Testament. It's the Spirit who brings life to the cosmos in Genesis 1. It's the Spirit who brings life to the dry, dead bones in Ezekiel 37. And here it's the Spirit who has brought life to Mary's womb in Matthew chapter 1. We move from the conception to the consternation in verse 19. We see the realisation of Joseph. The Bible tells us nothing about how Joseph discovered that his, his fiancée, his betrothed, was pregnant. Perhaps Mary told him as soon as the angel had spoken with him, with her. Perhaps he heard about it through the Nazareth rumour mill, the Nazareth gossip mill. Perhaps he was simply sitting in a synagogue one day and he happened to glance at Mary and he saw that unmistakable baby bump that she was carrying. Ultimately, we don't know how Joseph found out about Mary's pregnancy. All we know is that Joseph knew about it. And having seen the realisation of Joseph, we see the righteousness of Joseph. Matthew presents him here as being a righteous man, a just man. He's a man who took God's law seriously, including what God's law said about purity. He's a man who knew that God's law said that adultery, intimate relations outside of the marriage bond were punishable by execution or excommunication in that community. And at the same time, Matthew presents Joseph as being more than a a righteous man. He's a, a compassionate man. He's unwilling to see Mary subjected to shame. He doesn't want to make a spectacle of her by hauling her before the courts of Nazareth, the religious court, the the secular court. And having seen the righteousness of Joseph, we see the resolve of Joseph. Joseph's a righteous man and he knows that he can't take Mary as his wife. If he did, then everyone would assume that he was the father. And if he denied that he was the father, then everyone would treat Joseph with pity, with contempt, as the man whose fiancée cheated on him before the big day. And so Joseph resolves that he'll divorce Mary quietly. All he needs is another meeting in the presence of two or three witnesses. He'll then serve Mary the writ of divorce. And having done so, he'll be able to move on from this sorry episode with his own righteousness intact and Mary protected from further humiliation, protected from further scandal. So friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with the doctrine that we ought to believe. The doctrine that we ought to believe. That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is emphatic in declaring Jesus to be the one who is conceived supernaturally. The one who is conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. 
This is the doctrine that Matthew challenges the readers of his gospel to believe at the very outset of his work. The doctrine of a virgin birth. And that's important for us to reflect on. I recently came across the following story about the Christian writer C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was sitting in his office in the English department in Oxford when a, a friend who was an unbeliever wandered in. And there were carol singers down below singing Christmas carols. And the two men were speaking. And as they spoke, they could hear these carol singers singing a, a carol that spoke about the virgin birth of Jesus. C.S. Lewis's unbelieving friend said to C.S. Lewis, Isn't it good that we know better than they did? C.S. Lewis said to him, What do you mean? Well, isn't it good that we know more than they did? I'm afraid you'll have to explain, C.S. Lewis said. Well, isn't it good to know that virgins don't have babies? We know better than those people from ancient times. We know better than those carol writers. C.S. Lewis looked at his friend incredulously and said, Don't you think that they knew that? That's the whole point. Friends, the virgin birth of Jesus lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. It's a doctrine that's affirmed in the ancient creeds and confessions. It's a doctrine that presents every person who hears it with the glorious truth that Jesus is fully God and that he is fully man. That he is wholly human and he is wholly divine. It's a doctrine that, yes, it might startle, yes, it might shock, Yes, it might surprise, but none of that means that it should be doubted. None of that means it should be disbelieved. None of that means that it should be discarded. If you start doubting the virgin birth, then what are you going to do when you are called to believe that this same Jesus was raised from the dead? And so I ask you today, friend, are you someone who has received and is rejoicing in this great doctrine? Are you someone who has received and is rejoicing in the truth of the virgin birth? Or are you someone who's still perhaps rejecting and refusing to believe it? It's a doctrine, friends, that we ought to believe. But as we consider these verses, we're also being confronted not just with the doctrine that we ought to believe, but with the difficulties that we ought to expect. Again, that's what we see here in Matthew 1. Here's Joseph, a man who's pledged who's promised to be married and his fiancée's pregnant. He's in utter despair. All that he's ever planned, all that he's ever worked for appears to be in ruins. He's in a season of great difficulty and he's in a season of great difficulty because he and his fiancée have been sovereignly chosen by God to play a key role in the drama of redemption, the plan of salvation. And again, that's important for us to reflect on. One of my favourite bands is a band called The National and they have an album called Trouble Will Find Me. And in many ways that sums up the Christian life. As we walk the righteous paths that our shepherd leads us on, we find ourselves facing times of trouble. 
we find ourselves facing times of difficulty. Perhaps that applies to you today. Perhaps you're sitting in this building and you're going through a time of trouble in your workplace. Perhaps you're sitting in this building and you're going through a time of trouble in your marriage. Perhaps you're sitting in this building and you're going through a time of trouble with your children. Perhaps you're sitting in this building and you're going through a time of trouble with your health. And perhaps you're sitting in this building and you're wondering, am I even a Christian? Because surely a Christian, surely one of the Lord's people shouldn't have all the troubles, shouldn't have all the difficulties that I'm currently going through. And yet today, friends, we're being reminded as we look at Joseph that difficulties often accompany the life of faith. Trouble often finds the righteous. In other words, the Christian life isn't always plain sailing. And I know that some of the oldest saints in our congregation can testify to this in a far more powerful way, a far more poignant way, a far more personal way than I possibly can. That the Christian life, the life of the righteous, can involve seasons of great difficulty. So there's the scandalous issue. And then second we have the sovereign instruction. The sovereign instruction. And you see that in verses 20 to 25. Where Matthew focuses on the sovereign instruction that Joseph was given. The sovereign instruction that Joseph was given. In verses 20 and 21 we see the comfort. You can start by noting the appearance. Look at verse 20. Joseph is giving consideration to these things. He's giving careful thought to what he should do about the situation between himself and Mary. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And having noted the appearance, we can hear the assurance. Look at verse 20. The angel begins by addressing Joseph by name. Joseph. It's a reminder that his name is personally known to God. It's a reminder to him that his name is publicly known in the courts of heaven. This angel addresses him by name and says, Joseph. And the angel continues by addressing him as Joseph, son of David. Now Joseph's just a humble carpenter. Nothing special about him. Nothing significant about him. And yet this angel reminds him that he is a son. He is a descendant of King David. There is royal blood flowing through his veins. And the angel goes further and tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. Poor Joseph thought that the only way to deal with that scandalous situation was quietly divorce Mary and and get on with life. But the angel tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. Not to be afraid to face the gossips, the scorn... The ridicule of those who are living in Nazareth. And the angel assures him that the child that Mary's carrying has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. You know, friends, do you think for one moment when Mary said to Joseph, 
I'm pregnant and the reason I'm pregnant is because the Holy Spirit has come upon me. Do you believe for one minute that Joseph believed that? Do you believe it? I know I wouldn't. And so here's this angel and he's saying, you need to believe what your fiancé has said. She is indeed pregnant and she is pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. And having noted the assurance, we hear the assignment. Look at verse 721. The angel tells Joseph that Mary will give birth to a son and that Joseph is to name him Jesus. In the first century Jewish world, the names that parents gave to their children indicated their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations for that child. And the name Jesus means the Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. And the angel tells Joseph that this child will save his people and he will save them from their sins. Literally, he and he alone will save his people from their sins. Many first century Jews were hoping for a future salvation. They were hoping for a day of deliverance. They were hoping for a deliverer who would come, who would smash the Romans, drive out the corrupt religious establishment, bring an end to all the political compromise of the day. But here this angel declares that this child will save his people, deliver his people, rescue his people, not from a political situation, but from their spiritual condition. He will save his people from all their sins that have brought them under the judgment of God. And we move from the comfort to the comment. Look at verses 22 and 23. Matthew tells us that this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 22. And throughout the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, we hear this phrase being used again and again. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. It's a reminder that everything that is happening is fulfilling, accomplishing, completing God's plans, God's purposes, God's promises. And Matthew goes on to quote the words of the prophet that were fulfilled. Look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is taken from the prophecy of Isaiah. A man who spoke 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And now Matthew is saying that everything that is happening is fulfilling that prophecy of Isaiah. That this great child that Isaiah spoke about has come into the world. And this child is none other than the child that has been conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we move from the comment to the compliance in verses 24 and 25. Matthew tells us that Joseph did what the angel commanded him. Look at verse 24. He rises from his sleep. And he takes Mary as his wife, brings her into his home, lets the gossips say what they will. And Matthew then tells us that Joseph didn't know his wife until she gave birth to a son. Verse 25. It's a clear statement that underscores that virgin birth. That this child has been conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, it's a statement that undermines any notion of the perpetual virginity of Mary. 
And Matthew closes by telling us that Joseph named the child Jesus. End of verse 25. Now that's significant. Because as Joseph names this child, he is acknowledging that this child is his son, his heir. As he names this child, Joseph is accepting the great privilege and the costly responsibility of ensuring that this child will be legally called the son of David. It's a phenomenal obedience that Joseph shows. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with what Jesus would do for his people. What Jesus would do for his people. That's what we see here in Matthew 1. The angel tells Joseph that he is to name his child Jesus. And he's to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And that's important for us to reflect on. Jesus is the great saviour for sinners. Listen to how one older writer, J.C. Ryle, puts it. He would save his people from their sins. That is his special office. He saves his people from the guilt of sins by washing them in his atoning blood. He saves them from the dominion of sin by putting in their hearts the sanctifying spirit. He saves them from the presence of sin when he takes them out of this world to rest with him. He will save them from all the consequences of sin when he shall give them a glorious body at the last day. Blessed and holy are Christ's people from sorrow, cross and conflict. They might not be saved, but they are saved from sins forevermore. And so friend, there's a word for you if you're here today and you're not a Christian. If you're here today and you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to highlight to you, friend, even today, even on Christmas Eve, that your greatest need is to be saved, your greatest need is to be rescued, your greatest need is to be delivered from the coming judgment of God, the judgment that he has spoken about in his word. And I want to highlight to you, friend, that Jesus is the saviour that you need. And he's not just the saviour that you need, he's the only saviour that there is. That there is salvation in no other place. There's salvation in no other person. And so, friend, on this last Sunday before Christmas, I want to invite you, I want to urge you, I want to encourage you to receive this free gift of salvation, this Jesus who will save his people from their sins. But there is also a word for you if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus. Friends, this is the reason for the season. This is the basis for true and lasting joy that can never fade, never diminish, regardless of our circumstances. This is our only hope in life. This is our only hope in death. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom people like Hugh Ferrier, Roddy Ferguson, Spangy Murray, Chris Martin, Donnie Shugles and all the rest of us, we can say 
we are the worst. Christ Jesus came into the world to save us. And we bless his name that he's done so. Many of you are familiar, I know, with their band, Ren Collective. And they've got a song called Rescuer. Listen to how it goes. There is good news for the captive. Good news for the shamed. There is good news for the one who walked away. There is good news for the doubter. The one religion failed. For the good Lord has come to seek and to save. He is beauty for the blind man. Riches for the poor. He is friendship for the one whom the world ignores. He is pasture for the weary. Rest for those who strive. For the good Lord is the way, the truth, the life. He's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. Oh, how grace abounds. We will praise the Lord, our rescuer. That's what Jesus would do for his people. He would save them. He would rescue them. He would deliver him. And if my friend Donnie Rankin were here today, he would say, Hallelujah. He's our rescuer. But as we consider these verses, we're not just being confronted with what Jesus would do for his people, but with what Jesus would be for his people. Again, that's what we see in Matthew 1. Joseph is told that this child will be given the name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And at the very end of Matthew's gospel, this child, this Jesus will be found saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's important again for us to reflect on. Last week I received a text from a member of our congregation who's going through an incredibly unsettling season, an incredibly uncertain season, an incredibly upsetting season. And they simply said in their text that their great comfort in all that they are going through right now is that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. He's the God and Saviour who is with his people in all their providences, all their perplexities, all their pitfalls. There is never a moment when his loving eyes aren't on them. There is never a moment when his loving heart grows weary and tired of them. He's the one who's aware of, of all the sins that they might be struggling with. He's the one who's aware of all the sufferings that they might be going through. And he says to each and every one of them, I'm with you. I'm with you in your sins. And I'm with you in your suffering. And so this Christmas Eve, I want to encourage you, friend, whoever you are, Whatever you might be facing. And however you might be feeling. Some of you might be feeling very jolly today. And some of you might be feeling that you're just not coping today. I want to encourage you to remember that whoever you are. Whatever you're facing. 
however you're feeling, if you are one of Jesus' people, if you have received him as your saviour, you are not alone. And you will never be alone. He is with you. And he is with you even in the darkest valleys. You know, isn't it wonderful, friends, that as we look at God's word to this flummox fiancé, we're being reminded that there is a saviour whose name is Jesus. And not only is his name Jesus, but his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And I hope each and every one of you today, friends, would know the great joy, the great peace, the great comfort that comes from knowing this Jesus, this Emmanuel, as your Jesus, your Emmanuel. Well, let's